Thank you, Lori. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Well, if you are new around here, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Arcadia. Uh, and if you're new around here, you might be interested in knowing that Redemption is actually one church with seven congregations, um, and we are the Arcadia flavor of those congregations. And uh, Redemption is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and you just heard how outward-focused we are from uh, Josh's report of his trip to uh, Ethiopia, which we appreciate. And uh, we also believe that all of life is all for Jesus. And uh, we'll get into a lot of that today with the passage in, in Romans chapter uh, 9. Uh, one thing I want to mention about the fact that we are multi-congregational, because we have an event coming up that uh, will demonstrate how we are. Um, a few weeks ago, we mentioned that um, a, uh, a Lutheran church on the west side at 19th Avenue and Glen Rosa had decided to uh, turn their property, their campus, uh, almost six acres over uh, to Redemption Church, and that is going to become the new home of Redemption Alhambra, uh, Alhambra Village. And uh, they are in the process of moving in from uh, their, their old location in an, in an industrial park at, at 29th Avenue and Indian School into this new church. And their goal is to be in on Easter Sunday, which is the 20th. Uh, Redemption Alhambra has had a tradition, as we have, of having a, uh, a Good Friday service on Friday evening. Uh, before Easter and they are not going to be able to have that service uh, this year because they are actually going to be out of their old building but not quite into their new building. They're going to finish everything up on Saturday the 19th and so Aaron their lead pastor has asked if they could join us for Good Friday services and so we are actually going to be combining the two congregations Alhambra Village and Arcadia uh, into one Good Friday service that will be in this building right here on Friday April 18th at 7 o'clock and so we would encourage you all to come to that It'll be a lot of fun because there will be a lot of people here that you don't know, but we would also encourage you to invite uh, your friends and family and, and maybe people who don't know Christ especially to, um, uh, to come to that service. It'll be a wonderful time. And as I mentioned before, uh, we will be offering child care for that service for ages zero to three, and the service is going to last not more than one hour long, so we'll be done uh, at about eight o'clock. So please get that on your calendar for a couple Friday nights from now. Um, also, I just want to remind you that Easter Sunday services will be at our normal times at nine and 11, but of course they're going to be much more crowded than they normally are, and uh, especially for those of you that come to the 11 o'clock, there might be some, uh, some real tr heavy traffic between the services. I, I would encourage you to get here just a little bit early on that day so that you can get settled and find a parking place. And, and even if you could, if you're a regular here at Arcadia, in order to make room for the high number of guests that we will have that day, if you could either park across the street and use the uh, police escorts to get across Thomas or maybe park a little bit further down 42nd Street and, and walk a little ways, we would really appreciate that so that people who are not as familiar with Redemption Arcadia will have an easier time of finding a place to park. Uh, we, we would really appreciate if you can do that. So we are in Romans chapter 9. If you recall last week, Sean, also, uh, Sean Mortensen also covered these, these verses that we're going to cover uh, today. I'm going to do it a little bit uh, differently. But we are also uh, realizing that, that the context of this passage that we're looking at, the 24 verses we look at today, uh, is also within the, in the context of, of a larger block of Scripture that most people take together, and that would be Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Uh, most uh, theologians call Romans 9, 10, and 11 Paul's 
theology of Israel. In other words, he's unpacking the theology of Israel. He's explaining how the new covenant of Jesus Christ fits with the old covenant that we find in uh, the Old Testament and, it, and is kept by and given to uh, the, the nation of Israel. And these 24 verses that we look at today, Douglas Moo, who is a New Testament scholar, uh, he says that these 24 verses define the role that election plays in God's mercy. These 24 verses define the role that election plays in God's mercy. And so here's my job, my plan, and my purpose for today. I'm going to look at these and, and discuss these 24 verses in light of Paul's statement at the very beginning of this, of this passage. It's the first half of verse 6 where he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Uh, he, he's going to explain that although it seems like because not all Jews are saved, there's something wrong with the way God made this promise. And he's going to say, no, 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 no. The problem is with how you understand it, not ever with, whatever, what, with what God said. And so he's going to explain that the word of God has not failed. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to unpack it by, by looking at the historical context and references that Paul uses rather than what Sean did last week, which was uh, he used a contemporary systematic, a systematic theology approach in unpacking those verses. So y there's going to be some overlap and the themes are going to be similar, but I'm going to come at it from a, a different angle than, than he does. And so Paul starts this big section, this big clump of 24 verses by saying, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Another way of saying that is, it's not as though the promises of God, it's not as though the covenants of God have failed. And you and I, as followers of Christ, as Christians, we often wrestle with whether or not God's word or God's promises have failed in our life or for us. And it's not just necessarily with this issue of election or predestination or the theology of Israel or whatever you want to call this here. We wrestle with that possibility in many issues all the time. We wonder if, if God did something wrong or, or if, if his word has failed. But this is not a new challenge when it comes to God, the Bible, theology, or our possible consternation that we have with God. Because we do get put out with God from time to time, especially when we don't understand what it is that he's doing or has done. And I talk about this quite often because as a pastor, I run into this quite a bit. There are a number of people who will come to the Christian faith, they will come to Christianity with an expectation that the Christian faith never claimed you should have. And that expectation is that, is that I'm going to be able to come to Christianity and, and, and there's not going to be any tension in my walk with Jesus. That everything about the faith, the Christian faith, is going to be easy peasy. And, and all the angst in my life is going to be removed. Well, well, the Christian faith, the Bible, the Word of God never makes that promise and yet people expect the Christian faith to live up to that promise. But with the faith, there's still going to be tension. There's still going to be angst. And one of the things that Paul tries to get across in these 24 verses is it's not God's fault. When you and I feel tension or angst or, or feel confused about something, 
we often project the problem of that onto God and expect that it's something that he is supposed to be able to solve for us. And if he doesn't, then he's really not a good God. And, and here's something that you and I really need to learn how to embrace. I've been walking with Christ for 30 years now, and I've struggled with this myself. I understand how hard this is, but it's something that you and I need to, need to embrace. Just because you and I have an expectation for God to do something, it does not require that he fulfills that expectation. But so many of us approach God that way. We have an expectation, and if God doesn't fulfill it, then we dismiss God as not a good God, as not a merciful God. We are Americans. We have an expectation. We should be able to have it fulfilled. The problem is, is that there's mystery in life and there's mystery even and especially with God. Uh, Sean did a great job of talking about that last week, about explaining how the evangelical church really does a lousy job of embracing the mystery of God. We want to be able to explain away everything rationally, logically, and acceptably but by, by coming to God and saying, okay, make sure that I have everything put in its perfect box. And the reason this is a problem, the reason this is a problem is when you have a holy, perfect being, that would be God. And when I say holy, I don't mean W-H-O-L-L-Y. I mean holy, H-O-L-Y. When you have a holy, perfect being and you put him together with unholy, sinful, corrupt beings, we're gonna miss we're not going to be able to see things the same way. Our, our minds are too influenced by our sin and restricted and limited by our sin. And just the simple fact that we're not God and he is, we are going to miss. And so there is going to be mystery. And so we have to wrestle with that. There is always going to be tension to wrestle with when it comes to God. Here's how R.C. Sproul puts it. He's a contemporary uh, New Testament scholar. Here's how he puts it. He says, if, you're understand, if you understand everything God is saying in chapters 9 through 11, then you should be prepared to enter the Trinity. You should be prepared to join the Trinity. It's very difficult, and we're going we're gonna to wrestle with this. And so we recognize that this is challenging stuff, and I'm okay with it being hard, and I hope you are too. And so as your pastor, my encouragement would be to you is, is don't run from this, no matter how hard it gets, but rather embrace it and wrestle with it and just know that this is going to be part of the walk of faith. And so our big idea today is this. God in his sovereignty chooses to be merciful. God in his sovereignty chooses to be merciful. I said this a couple weeks ago at the beginning of, of the last passage in chapter 8, that verses 31 through 39, where Paul tells us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. I said, this is really good news. Well, I'm here to proclaim to you that verses 6 through 29 of chapter 9 are also really good news. And the reason it's good news is because, brothers and sisters, we are all coming from the same lump of clay. Paul references this lump of clay in this passage. And we're all coming from that same lump of clay. And that lump of clay is unholy and, and, and dishonorable. And the only way that this lump of clay can be made honorable and given honor is if God intercedes in his sovereignty with his mercy in our lives. God will have mercy and compassion on whom he has mercy and compassion and that is how we are saved. 
The great reformer Martin Luther explains it like this five, six hundred years ago. He says, when God turns someone over, in other words, when God removes his favor or his common grace from someone, by nature it necessitates that they will only continuously choose evil. God must intervene with his mercy if there is to be salvation. You see, our will as human beings, our volition, some people would call it, as human beings, is not free in the sense that we will ever choose God without God intervening in our lives. Now, you and I can have the discussion and we can have the debate about how, how we are free to choose the food we eat and the clothes we wear and the cars we drive and the neighborhood we live in and the schools that we want to go to and the friends that we have. We're, we're free to make those choices, but specifically when it comes to righteousness and salvation, our, re, our wills only respond to two things. There's only two things that our wills will respond to, and that is the wickedness of the sin in our hearts or the merciful intervention of God in our lives. The effectual call of God by His mercy. In his book, The Doctrines That Divide, Erwin Lutzer describes it this way. He says, the two views on salvation can be contrasted like this. Imagine a man is drowning. Those who embrace free will believe that God throws the man a rope. But whether or not the man grabs the rope is up to his choice and disposition. And even if he does grab the rope, he must choose by his own efforts to hang on to it. Those who embrace the doctrines of grace, or you might say election, they say that the man may be drowning, but he is totally unaware that he's drowning because spiritually speaking, he is dead. Therefore, he cannot even reach out to God's grace. God must reach down and save the man by his mercy. He does this by quickening the lifeless corpse and granting him the faith to believe. Thus, salvation is holy of God. And that is what Paul explains through these 24 verses that we're going to go through. So, the word of God has not failed God chooses in his sovereignty to be merciful. And we're going to do that through an outline of four points. An outline of four points. And these four points correspond with the four paragraphs in this passage. And the first point is verses 6b through 13. And this is it. There is a difference between national Israel and spiritual Israel. Paul first starts this discourse by saying there's a difference between national or ethnic Israel, the big Israel, and the remnant Israel, the, the saved Israel. The spiritual Israel. And he starts his discourse by saying this in the second half of verse 6. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Again, Douglas Moo says this. He says, This is the Israel within Israel that Paul is talking about. This is the true spiritual Israel, the remnant Israel within the larger Israel that Paul is talking about. Consider, you think about church, for instance. Just because we have a church filled with 200 people, it does not mean that we are filled with 200 Christians. There are even people who attend churches all across the world who attend them regularly every Sunday who are not Christians. There are some people who attend church who are not Christians. In other words, just because you're in a church every week, it doesn't mean that you are a Christian. Any more than it means that if you're standing in a garage, it means that you're a car. Something has to happen to transform you into one of God's 
chosen, one of, one of God's who have been delivered. And that's what Paul, Paul's point is, is, is bringing in this paragraph. And, and this is nothing new to Paul. I mean, he talks about this in his other writings in Galatians. He talks about it in Romans chapter 4. And he also talks about it in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where he writes this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. In other words, you're not necessarily a Jew just because you were born in Israel. Nor is circumcision outward or physical. You're not saved just because you put something and do something to your outward appearance. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. By the work of the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. So in other words, Paul is saying just because you are born a certain someone to a certain family or tribe or group in a certain place with certain privileges, it does not necessarily mean that you are saved. And the key is actually in verse 11. It's what he says in verse 11. I'll read verses 10 through 12 to give you context. But the key is in verse 11. He writes, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's the key. Because of him who calls, she was told, the other will serve the younger. The older will serve the younger. And in that context, that would be radical for the older to serve the younger. The older is the one who's supposed to have the privilege and the birthright and the inheritance, and the younger would serve the older. But God switches that. And so that is, that is a radical transformation. But it's because of the one who calls. And Paul gives us two illustrations in this text. He talks about Ishmael and, and Isaac, and he talks about Jacob and Esau. And he says, listen, God chose Isaac, but not Ishmael, though both were born to Abraham. And he says, God also told Jacob, uh, chose Jacob rather than Esau, though both were twins and they were both born to Abraham, I'm sorry, to Isaac and Rebekah. And there's two illustrations because, because that first illustration could be flawed and, and Paul knew that. And, and the reason it could be flawed is because Ishmael was not also born to Sarah. Ishmael was born to Hagar, who was a slave woman who worked for Abraham and Sarah. And, and actually, Ishmael was, was a child of the flesh. He was a child of Abraham and Sarah's disbelief in God that he would fulfill his promise. And so people looking at that illustration would say, could say, well, of course he's going to choose Isaac. Isaac was the child of the promise. Of course he's going to choose him and not choose Ishmael. So Paul comes along and makes it perfectly clear by saying, oh yeah, well it also happened to Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau who were twins, born of the same parents, and, and, and who had done nothing. God chose them while they were still in the, room, in the womb. In other words, it was totally equal ground. In fact, with Jacob and Esau, God makes this crazy statement that Paul that, that's crazy to us that Paul quotes. He says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. And you and I hate that sentence. We really don't like that sentence. And the reason is because you and I use the word hate in a completely different way than Scripture uses the word hate. When you and I think of hate and haters, we think of people who are aggressively active and emotional. But in Scripture, that's not what it means. Both, both Keller and Hughes says this does not describe an aggressive 
or emotional hate, but rather a comparative hate. In other words, by showing favor to Jacob, God, by comparison, hated Esau. And if you'll recall, Jesus uses the same kind of language in Luke chapter 14, which if we don't understand it, can be equally as shocking. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, does not hate his wife and his children, does not hate his brothers and sisters, yes, even hate his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. And some of us would look at that. First time I ever read it, I looked at that and I said, really? Hate Jackie? Hate my mom? Hate my children? I haven't even had children yet and I'm being told I'm going to have to hate. No, I'm, I'm not interested in that. But what Jesus means is not an aggressive emotional hate, but rather that our priority is going to place, be placed on Jesus. It's not that we, that we would disregard them, but our priority is placed on Jesus. In fact, by the way, those of you who are married and are thinking about getting married and maybe you're in premarital counseling with me, the first step in having a great marriage is to make sure that you marry a spouse who loves Jesus more than they love you. And I know that's hard for some of us to hear. The first time I heard that, I was like, forget it, man. Jackie better love me better than she loves anything else. You know, that's a, that's a statement born out of total narcissistic self-centeredness. And in fact, the reason Jackie's such a wonderful spouse is because she does love Jesus more than she loves me. And then that love that Jesus has for her and the love that, 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 that she has for Jesus is then manifested toward me by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's great. It's better than selfish, self-centered, self-serving love. And so the, the priority is on Jesus. It's not that we hate actively and emotionally our, our, our family. And so Paul's first point is that national Israel is different than spiritual Israel. And the difference is specifically in whom God chooses to place his favor. In other words, his effectual call in somebody's life. And that leads to point number two, which is verses 14 through 18. God's decision to show mercy does not result in any injustice. So right out of the gate, Paul knows there's going to be some, some pushback. In fact, Sean mentioned last week that both verses 14 and 19 are objections that must be acknowledged because they are natural responses to biblical teaching about the sovereignty of God. So verse 14 is, is there any injustice with God? Is, is, there, is, there, is God arbitrary? Is God capricious? And this pushback that all of us have against God reflects our natural human fallen desire to be in charge. That's what it represents. It's our natural fallen desire in our sin to be in charge to be God ourselves, to be in control. It's part of the curse. It's part of the Genesis chapter 3 curse. That's why I'm constantly saying, if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you first have to understand Genesis 3. If you don't get that, you're not going to get the rest of the Bible. It's just not going to make any sense to you. And this is why the curse, the fall in Genesis 3, is so desperately pro problematic. You know, the vast majority of us, including many Christians, believe that if there is some wickedness in us, if there is some evil in us, if there is some sin in us, that we're merely shaded by it. It's, it's there, it's sort of a little cloud that's around us, but we're really basically good. And that is not a biblical understanding of human nature. It's not. 
We are not merely shaded by sin, but rather we have a full-blown, desperate sin condition that you and I can't even understand without God specifically bringing His enlightenment into our lives. It's the only way we're going to be able to understand it. And, and we should at least be able, to, uh, be able to admit that there is empirical evidence that demonstrates that this is true. I mean, ever since the fall, ever since Genesis 3, Humans have been both blaming God for his actions and trying to call him to account for his actions as if we are in charge. That's just the way we are. And it started with Adam. You realize it started with Adam. Adam and Eve commit the first sin, the, the original sin, the sin that got us all into trouble. Okay, And so now here comes God into the garden to walk with them and to, to be in relationship and fellowship with them. And he calls out to Adam because now Adam is hiding from God for the first time in his life. He calls out to Adam and he says, what are you doing? And they get into this conversation and the minute God asks him a question and tries to hold him accountable, what does Adam do? He says, well, God, the woman you put here with me, she's to blame for this. This is Adam telling God you are the one that needs to be held to account for this, not me. I didn't do anything wrong. It's you gave me this woman. Why did you give me this woman? Who, by the way, the first time Adam saw this woman, he recited poetry. He was pretty excited to see her in the, in the beginning. Now he's blaming her for his sin, for his fault. And he's holding God accountable for it. You know why? God is an easy target. He's just an easy target. When we screw something up, it's just easy to blame him. And so we call him to account. And all through the Old Testament, you see this happening, even up to the last Old Testament book, Malachi, where, where, where Malachi records that the people in Israel are telling God, God, you have not loved us up to our standards. We have very particular standards about how we're supposed to be loved by God, and you're not living up to those standards. They're calling God to account for not loving them the way they wanted to be loved. Tim Mon says this, the human problem is not confusion but rebellion. We think we have a right to behave this way because we're confused about what God is doing. But he says, no, the, the problem is not confusion, it's rebellion. Jim Montgomery Boyce says it this way in his book, in most discussions about spiritual things, people today are essentially asking God to leave heaven, come down to earth, stand before our bar of justice, and give an account of himself according to our small standards. That's what we want God to do. And so now we enter that very discussion, and I want to start here. This may be a tad unsatisfying, but Paul's answer to the question, is there any injustice with God, is very simply this, absolutely not. May it never be. In the Greek, me genoito, with exclamation points. Of course not. No. Now, why does he start this way with such an unsatisfying? No. No. Why does he start this way? Well, very often, the only way that you and I as fallen creatures can learn spiritual truth is to start by being reminded who God is and who is not God. There's a great scene from the movie Rudy. Anybody see the movie Rudy about that little guy that wanted to play football at Notre Dame? Okay. He's, somebody saw it apparently. Um, he's still in community college, Rudy is, and he, 
he's frustrated because he's, he can't seem to get into Notre Dame. And so he goes to his priest and they're sitting there in, in, in the church and he's talking to this older priest and he's going, I don't know what God is doing. I wish I could understand why this is happening. I wish I knew what I, what I was supposed to do. Can't you help me? And the priest looks at Rudy and he says this, son, in 35 years of theological study, I have found that there are two incontrovertible truths. There is a God and I'm not him. And here's another way of saying it. And, and it's something that you and I really should wrestle with and embrace. Paul is content placing himself under God's authority. What Paul is saying here is, I'm content placing myself under God's authority and his sovereignty. You should be too, because he's God. And, and many of us are content placing part of our lives under God's authority and sovereignty, but to give him the whole thing, that's where we really struggle. And I know, I, I know... I know the arguments, not because, not because I'm smarter than you, but because I'm there with you. I mean, I've, I've walked this walk with you guys, and I know what, what you think about it, and, and you might be thinking, but, but this can't possibly be what mercy looks like. This can't be what mercy looks like. But I want you to think about this. If God is compelled to behave mercifully by some outside source according to the standards of that source, then it is no longer God's mercy, and he's no longer God. Do you see that? If he has to live up to your standard of what mercy is, then you're God. Congratulations. You've inherited all the world's problems. Let's see how you do with it. Let's see how you do with everybody's sin. And so we're in the midst of this discussion and, and really the key, I think, is in verses 15 and 16. And I would say this is actually the heart of this entire 24-verse passage. Paul writes, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, Douglas Moo says this, God only works mercy on sinners. His mercy changes a person's heart. His hardening merely affirms the sinner's choices he or she has already made. And Paul gives us the historical Pharaoh as his illustration. And it's going to get thick right now, my brothers and sisters. Listen to verses 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. And I know, I know. We look at that and we say, wait, 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 wait. God actively hardened Pharaoh's heart? Come on. Yes, it seems as though he did. But we also have to remember the historical story of Pharaoh. You can find it in, in Exodus chapter 7 through 12. What we often forget about that story is that God came to Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him what's going to happen. And tell Pharaoh, let my people go or these devastating things are going to happen to I Egypt and to your people. And he did this not once, not twice, not three. He did it ten times. Ten times he says, Moses, go and see if you can get Pharaoh to understand and to agree and to let my people go. They're known as the ten plagues of Egypt. And what we often forget is that for the first five of those plagues, the scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, there were several times when Pharaoh told Moses, okay, 
it's a deal. I'll let you guys go. To tell your God that I'm going I'm to let you, you people go. And then he rescinded on his offer. He hardened his own heart against the people of Israel and he rescinds on his offer. And so then God came in for the last five curses and that's where we start to hear that God is now hardening Pharaoh's heart. You need to understand that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Pharaoh is not the victim of any injustice. Pharaoh is a lost sinner going his own way, wanting to be God. Pharaoh is you and I before Christ invaded our lives. That's who Pharaoh is. God gave Pharaoh multiple opportunities to repent and to believe and to show compassion. God was not unrighteous with Pharaoh. God merely confirmed what Pharaoh was doing and was already in his heart. That's all he did. And again, I know that's really heavy. And, and, and some people may say, but wait a minute. I thought this too the first time I read it. Isn't it possible that God messed this up? No. Because if he did, then he's not God. And, and what we have to grasp is that there's something actually bigger going on here. It, it's, it's God's good purpose that's being played out here. And it's much bigger than you and I can ever see this side of heaven. And, and consider this is one of the reasons why we need faith. If faith didn't need any leaps, then it wouldn't be faith. If faith didn't, didn't need to be bothered with the idea that we don't know anything, then it wouldn't be faith. That's why Scripture tells us that, that we should consider it joy when our faith is tested. Because if our faith never gets tested, then it's really not faith. If everything is easy and everything is a sure thing, then you're not acting on faith. That's why we need faith. And that leads into our third point, which is in verses 19 through 24. God chooses specifically to demonstrate his mercy and glory. <clears throat> Let me read those verses to you because it's been a few minutes. 19 through 24, Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he, God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. But who are you, old man? Oh, oh man, old man. Oh, man. To answer back to God, I'm thinking of myself here, I'm reading autobiographically. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which, is, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul comes and he gives this second objection in verse 19. And in 20, Paul essentially admits that he has no satisfactory spin doctor answer for that question. He admits it. As Sean mentioned last week, Paul does not feel the need to relieve our existential angst. Paul's not sitting there going, I'm sorry you feel angst and, and that you feel tension. My job is now to relieve that. He doesn't think that's his job. His job is to present the sovereign mercy of God. That's his job, not to make you feel better. And it's funny because we need to realize this is something that's very hard for us as Americans to get a hold of, but there are cultures all over the world that are okay with that tension and that angst. There are cultures all over this, the world that would read this passage and go, okay, that's okay with me. I understand there's tension there. Social science research has, has shown repeatedly that the United States is actually 
a culture that is something known as low ambiguity tolerant. We hate uncertainty. We hate ambiguity. We, we hate tension and we hate angst. And we think it's our God-given right as Americans to have all of that relieved for crying out loud. It's got to be in the Constitution somewhere, right? Depending on how you read the Constitution, it's in the Bill of Rights for crying out loud. No, no. It's really an American thing to believe that all tension and angst must be relieved. Not Paul. If Paul were standing here today, he would say to us, my job here today is not to make you feel better about yourselves. And he points that out again with what we need to hear. God is the potter and we are merely the clay. And he's thinking there, you can write this down for later, he's thinking there of two prophets, Jeremiah chapter 18 and Isaiah chapter 45. And I'll read you what he says in 45, verses 9 and 10. Woe to the one who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. In other words, woe to the one who's just another pot who thinks that he's going to be God. Woe to that person. Now, I don't know about you, but anytime in the Bible you read woe, that's a bad thing, okay? It's like the opposite of blessing, okay? Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Hey God, you made me without handles. I want to be one of those pots with handles. But he's God. He's the one who makes us. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? In other words, here's what Isaiah is saying. You don't have any control over this because you are not God. And that's the argument that Paul is making too because the illusion is that we have control. The illusion is that we have control and can control everything in our lives. And maybe the most difficult but important point in all of this is this. God does this to show people his glory and he does it for the benefit of those who receive his mercy. The reason God does this in his sovereignty is to show us his glory and for the benefit of those who receive his mercy. One of the most challenging things for you and I to see in the midst of this conversation is that it's really part of God's good and graceful mercy to us for us to be put in our place sometimes. That's actually a good and graceful thing for him to come along and occasionally say, I need to remind you of who you are. I need to remind you that I'm God and, and you are not. And you are not. And again, there is an Old Testament context and understanding here that we should at least tip our hat to. A couple weeks ago, I said, look at Exodus chapter 32 in the background of this passage. That was Romans 9, 1 through 5. Well, in the background of this passage is Exodus chapter 33. So Exodus 33 is in the wake of the mess that the people of Israel made when they made the golden calf. And Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets and broke the tablets and got mad at them and tried to straighten things out. And then he goes back up to God. And Exodus 33 is God is, is Moses back with God, begging God not to abandon the people. And in the midst of that conversation, Moses is making his case to God. And in the midst of that conversation, he asks God three questions. He asked him for three things. The first thing he asked God is he says, listen, I want you to show me your ways so that I might find favor in a relationship with you. So, so here's what he's saying. Let me translate that for you. He's saying, I want you to teach me who you are, what your character is, and how that's supposed to manifest itself in my life. I want all of you to be all in my life. That's what he's saying. 
and, and I want to know what that looks like so that I can maintain this relationship with you. If I don't know your ways and your character, our relationship is going to be severed. I want to maintain this relationship with you. And God looks at Moses and says, you got it. And, and, then, and then Moses says, listen, there's no way that as your nation we can go on without you. I want you to promise that your presence will be with us. I want you to go before us. I want you to protect us from behind. I want you to be all around us. We need your presence as a people. We have to be with you. And God says, yes, you will have my presence. And then the third request comes. And this is probably the boldest request of all. Moses says to God, show me your glory. He just says, show me your glory. And God's answer to Moses' request that God show me your glory was this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, God's glory is expressed in his mercy. God's glory is expressed in his mercy. And the fact that he does not show everyone mercy does not diminish any of his glory. You and I come to this and we look at this and we say the only way God can have total glory is if he quantitatively expresses his mercy to everyone. And that's not true. That he expresses his mercy at all is a demonstration of his total glory. That's what we have to understand. That he doesn't show mercy to everyone does not diminish his glory. In fact, that he shows mercy to some is an expression of his total glory. And we struggle with this, I know. This is really hard. And, and, and Sean mentioned this last week. I want to bring it up again because it is so instructive. Job also struggled with this, remember? Job has this wild ride with God. And it's not very pleasant. And he doesn't think it's very fair. Job doesn't think it's fair. Neither do his, do his friends. And at the end of it, at the end of chapter 37, at the beginning of chapter 38, when it's pretty much over, Job goes to God and he does exactly what I talked about early. Job is calling God to account for his actions. And he says, God, I want you to answer some questions. And God's response is classic. Sean gave us a part of it last week. He left a little bit of it for me, probably my favorite part. In chapter 38, verse two, God starts his conversation with Job this way. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Some scholars say that this is the most sarcastic statement that God makes in all of Scripture. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this mere creature whom I have created who is finite in his understanding who is now going to come and try to counsel me about what is right? At that moment, God has every right to do whatever he wants to with Job. And he decides that he's going to instruct Job and it's going to be a little bit tough for Job to take. In fact, he says this. He says, dress for action like a man, Job, and I am going to question you. Dress for action like a man, for I am going to question you. In the Hebrew, dress for action like a man literally means gird up your loins. It's not in the Hebrew or in the English, but I would add that God is thinking because Job, you're about to get the cosmic kick of your life. That's what he's saying. 
And there's two very clear things that, that God is trying to get across here. Number one, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who are we to hold God to a particular standard? And the second thing is, you're about to get this cosmic kick and Job has got to be saying, but why? I would imagine that God is thinking this way because you need a lesson from Rudy's priest and I'm the one who's going to give it to you. There is a God and it's not you. And that's what we all need to hear as well. And that leads into our last point. God's choices often amaze us. God's choices often amaze us. And we see this in verses 25 through 29. Paul writes, As indeed, he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, as Isaiah predicted. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. And there we begin to enter into that remnant theology. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is God's people are not all from Israel and some of God's people are actually not from Israel. There's going to be a mixture. This section actually returns, this paragraph actually returns to that first paragraph, verses 6 through 13, where, where Paul says not all Jews are part of the spiritual Israel. God never promised that all the Jews would be saved, and God also did promise that there would be some Gentiles who would be saved. And that often amazes us. And it amazed them in their day as well because you and I really do, even as Christians who know the grace of God through Jesus Christ, you and I really do have grids through which we believe people deserve salvation, don't we? Even though we know it's all by grace, we will say things like, man, she is such a wonderful, good, compassionate, charming person. God really needs, she really needs to become a Christian. She deserves to know God. She does, but not that guy over there. And everybody knows it. We still have these grids, but God specifically says, I choose and save based absolutely not on who deserves it, but based solely on my mercy. And so we come back to God's mercy as I wrap up. Let me read those two verses again that I believe are the heart of this passage. It's verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's mercy is a demonstration of His glory. And when Paul says it depends, what he means is salvation depends on God's mercy. And here's what this teaches us about mercy. Three things. Number one, you and I need God's mercy to be saved. You and I need God's, we think we need a host of other things, but what we really need is God's mercy to be saved. And salvation is for us. We should rejoice in that. Salvation is a gift that is given to us by God through his son Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember that it is about God. It is about a demonstration of his glory and his sovereignty. We are actually saved by God, from God, for God, to his glory. And that leads to the second point. God is a God of mercy. He really is. I mentioned before, we like to talk about what, what people deserve. Okay, let's talk about what we deserve. 
theologically, existentially, spiritually, you know what we deserve? Do you know what each one of us deserves? Wrath. Justice. We are sinners. We deserve to be judged and condemned. But God gives us mercy by placing judgment and punishment on His Son at the cross and gives us life through His resurrection. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And that leads to point number three about mercy. We are therefore called to proclaim His mercy to others. We need God's mercy to be saved. God is a God of mercy. And now we are called to proclaim His mercy to others. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If you have experienced the mercy of God and you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has become. And all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we have something to do. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are, we are gospel-centered, but outward focus. We are to go out as ministers of reconciliation. We are to proclaim the mercy of God to other people. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so it is mercy. It was God's mercy in the beginning. It's God's mercy now and it will be God's mercy forever. That is Paul's point. And I know we hear the complaint often. Mercy then sounds unfair. At least, at least it sounds unfair the way you and I think fair ought to be. But we need to remember that God never said, hey, I'm going to tell you what's fair. He never says that in his word. Instead, he says, this is my mercy. And it's at this point, I would just leave you with two questions that Martin Luther asks about this, this text. He comes to people and he says, how deep is your gospel and how sovereign is your God? That's what we need to wrestle with.